0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
3: I saw, um, I think it was on Instagram. I saw like a Venn diagram at one point, and on one side was ambition, and on the other side was narcissism, and in the middle was writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
2: I'm Alex Higley,
3: and I'm Lindsay Hunter, and And I'm I'm a a writer. writer, but... Heads just wanted to let you know that by popular demand, mainly from Alex and my mothers, uh, we sell merch now. Um, the link is, <laughs> is really uh, involved. So why don't you just head on over to our Instagram where we have the link in our profile and a little post and um, or you can message us about it and, and we'll gladly send you the link and beg you to buy some stuff. But we've got hoodies and shirts and mugs, and I think they're even on sale right now. So if you're looking for a way to support us, or if you just want to show the world that you're a writer, even as you're crying in your minivan, like me, go ahead and uh, visit our merch store and uh, give us a little purchase. And if you don't want to do that, that's totally fine, too. Just want to thank you for listening. Listening is all the support that we need. And now on with the show welcome to i'm a writer but today we have joy lansendorfer her first novel right back where we started from comes out in paperback in may 2022 other essays and short stories have appeared in the new york times the washington post raritan the atlantic npr plowshares alaska quarterly review and poetry foundation her work has been included in the best small fictions 2019 and was notable in the 2019 and 2020 editions of the best american essays She's the host of What's the Story, a book-oriented radio show and podcast on 95.9 FM, The Crush. (laughs) Welcome, Joy.
1: Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me.
3: So exciting. I absolutely loved your book, and I cannot wait to talk to you about it. But first, please read to us.
1: Okay. Sure. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, um, so right back where we started from, it covers 100 years of history. It mostly follows a woman named Sandra Sanborn in the 1930s and 40s, but it also goes back into uh, the past into her grandmother, uh, Vera, coming over during the gold rush. So I thought I would read you the first chronological chapter of the novel, kind of where it all starts. And it's 1852. um, And I think that's all you really need to know. So, okay, I'll read this chapter to you. So um, it's a recorded fact that the Sanborn Ball was held during a thunderstorm. While the weather might have been enough to cancel an ordinary party, this ball was much anticipated by Maine Society because the venerable judge, Luke Sanborn, was expected to announce the engagement of his son, James Sanborn, to a Miss Melissa Fletcher. On top of that, the judge, had converted the attic of his three-story home into a ballroom. When the guests arrived, they were directed up two flights of stairs to the third story, where the new ballroom spanned the length of the house. A maple floor gleamed, bouquets of flowers on the walls, and refreshments were laid out beside a barrel of Judge Sanborn's famous applejack. So at one end of the room, a small orchestra was setting up. At the other end, a balcony overlooked a field. Someone in reckless spirits had thrown open the door and an energized breeze blew through the room. Every so often, lightning struck the field and each time the guest exclaimed, ooh. Only Elmer Sanborn, James's cousin, remained unmoved. He had more important things to think about than lightning. In less than a month, he was planning to leave for the California Gold Rush. His family was against the plan and insisted he come to the ball, hoping that a young lady would distract him from his goals. But they could never understand how dull the twirling dancers seemed to Elmer. Compared to the sparkling promise of California Gold, Maine Society women were as ordinary as wrens before his eyes. As they danced, he stood by the wall with his hands behind his back, measuring the cost of the journey against the riches he expected to make in California. The newspaper said that a man could net over $1,500 a day in the gold rush. That was more than Elmer could expect as a yearly salary after a lifetime of working at his father's bank, and that was just one figure. It was possible to make 10 times that if you were lucky. Given this, Elmer couldn't understand why every man at this ball wasn't leaving for California this instant. Take his cousin, James, whose engagement to this, uh, whose engagement this ball was celebrating. Everyone said James was going to be a great lawyer like his father someday, but Elmer could only pity him. James would spend every day rearranging papers in the office while Elmer would be living a life of wealth and adventure. Elmer had even asked his cousin to come with him to California, but James had proposed to Melissa instead to do something like that there, when there was a gold rush going on. Elmer couldn't fathom it. Near the balcony, James was standing beside Melissa, who was patting the bottom of her ringlets so that they bounced upwards. Elmer had seen her do this several times, and each time the gesture had struck him as particularly vain. Now, Melissa was talking to someone else, a woman. Who was that? Elmer could only see the side of her head. He strained forward, squinting through the dancers that separated him from the balcony until he recognized the girl. It was the piano player from church. Her name was Vera Webb. Here, Elmer tried to go back to thinking about the gold rush, but he kept trailing off to watch Vera. There was something arresting about her. It wasn't that she was prettier than the other girls at the ball. Elmer wouldn't even have noticed her if she didn't get up in front of the congregation to play piano every Sunday. No, something else was drawing Elmer's attention to Vera as she stood on the balcony with the evening sky streaked purple and gray behind her. He blinked to clear his vision. Yes, it was still there. Vera was glowing blue. It wasn't so much that Vera herself was blue as the blue was hovering over her skin encircling her face and neck and fading into her clothes. It was a soft blue, the color of forget-me-nots, but noticeable enough that Elmer could see it from across the room. The feet of the dancers pounded in the rhythm of the Virginia reel as another gust of of wind blasted the women's skirts. As if hypnotized, Elmer pushed through the dance floor to get closer to Vera. The blue outlined her body in a fuzzy radiance like halos Elmer had seen in pictures of saints. She even looked a bit like a saint just then, smiling at Melissa with her hands clasped in front of her. Then, as Elmer watched, One of Vera's blonde curls rose off her forehead and stood straight in the air as if someone was holding it there. She was laughing and the curl moved with her as she leaned forward and touched Melissa's arm with her icy blue hand. If nothing else, Elmer was a man of action. He dove across the room and tackled Vera, pulling her into the ballroom. The dancers stopped in collective shock, but there was no time for outrage. As Vera's shoes cleared the balcony, there was a violent crack, like monstrous billiard balls slamming together. Lightning struck where Vera had been standing, hitting the balcony in a fierce stab as red and hot as a fireplace poker. Flames began to creep towards the ballroom. Before anyone could stop, him james sanborn grabbed the barrel of applejack and emptied it onto the fire it was the wrong thing to do smoke billowed everywhere as the, as the flames react, reacted to the liquor and traveled closer to the dancers people began to scream all over the room everyone to the stables the stables luke sanborn shouted the guests rushed towards the stairs Though the doorframe was wide enough for a man and woman to enter the ballroom in grand style, it wasn't enough for the minister's wife and two portly widows to shove through at once. For a moment, the women were caught like caterpillars in the beak of a bird, but then they burst into the hallway, petticoats flying up in all directions. While this was going on, Vera lay in Elmer's grasp, apparently having fainted, undaunted, Rather enjoying himself, Elmer picked Vera up and carried her through the stampeding guests to the stables where she regained consciousness in time to be laid in a carriage. For a moment, she met Elmer's hazel eyes with her own. Then he grinned and galloped off to help with the fire. That's a very brave young man, said a friend, watching Vera closely. Yes, she said. She might have said something else then. But as the word left her mouth, rain began to pour down in a torrent. The balcony was doused and smoke rose to the sky. People hurried to their carriages, ball gowns slick like wet rose petals. The air was filled with the smell of burnt apples. As the women gathered around Vera, her blue eyes followed the men rushing to keep the weakening fire from spreading. Onlookers noticed how she watched one man in particular as he darted through the rain. Some later said she caused the fire by standing where lightning could hit her.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Joy, you've published short fiction all over the place, but with right back where we started from uh, your first novel, your debut, you really took a big swing. It's a historical novel, something that it seems like took a a ton of research. Um, I was curious if there were other projects over the years that you had worked on that you had thought maybe be your first novel, or was this big of a swing kind of always what you had been working towards and, and planning to be your debut?
1: Yeah, this—that's a good question. I—it was my first idea, um, and I am unfortunately drawn towards extremely complicated, ambitious t- projects. I, <laughs> the one I'm working on now is—is—is is, is really complicated, and I, I hate that about myself. I keep telling myself I should just write a story where I follow a character through events. And that's, (laughs) but no, I, um, I'm really drawn towards ambitious, ridiculously complicated stuff. And and that's why it takes me so long to write a novel. (laughs) So yeah, I'm, I'm,
3: yeah. How long did it take you to write this one?
1: Oh, well, okay. Do you guys want to hear the whole, the whole. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, well actually I finished this in 2012 Okay. Yeah. Oh. oh, you'll, you'll probably like this story. So, okay. I, so I started it, it took me eight years to write it. Um, Cause yeah, it, it covers a hundred years of history. It's, it's three storylines. Um, you know, there's three main characters. It's going back and forth in time and, and it's all about greed and ambition and women. Like what happens when women are ambitious and, and basically gold rushing. Right. And so, um, so it took me eight years to write. Um, and then I finished it in 2012. And, um, I sent it out that fall and I got an agent pretty fast. Um, and she started sending it out. And what, one thing you should know about this book is the main character is now named Sandra, but at the time her name was Sandy. Hmm. And so at first the agent was sending it out and she was like, and, and I was getting good feedback, you know, you send it out to New York publishers and they're like, you know, they come back and they're, they're like, this is really good, um, book club fodder this is really interesting i'm sure someone will publish this and so it was it was going well and then two things happened hurricane sandy happened
3: oh Oh.
1: and then sandy hook elementary oh (laughs) jesus christ yeah yeah and it it had Uh, it had a huge impact because my character was named Sandy and even though editors aren't idiots and obviously know that that has nothing to do with my book it still had this impact because it was like Hurricane Sandy directly affected New York and then Sandy Hook was a horrible horrible thing that happened Mm -hmm. and so people were just like this is so my character Sandy is not the happiest of people and she's she's what they call a, a complicated woman and and this was already a problem. Like the feedback we were getting before these two events was like, this is a really good book. We really like it, but we're not so sure about this character. Like she's kind of difficult, and we kind of not sure if you like her. And so that that at that point after those two events happened, it turned into this is nihilistic. <laughs> this book, oh my god. This book is so depressing. <laughs> and it was it was totally the events. And so it was just really, really, really bad timing. So I kind of gave up after a while. I tried to get my oh, and then the other thing that happened was my agent quit the business. Oh my she gosh. Just, she just left my book stranded. And <sighs> so it was just, it was just really bad luck. My book was stranded. The agency wasn't helping me out. I tried to get another agent. And then I just think I was just so discouraged. I kind of gave up. And so that was the end in my mind. I was I was just like, well, first books fail, you know? Mm-hmm. And then 2018, I, I had actually written another book and I was sending that out for agents. And this agent emails me out of the blue. Her name's Susan Velasquez and she's with Jabberwocky Literary Agency. She's like, Is right back where we started from still available? Oh, and I, oh, wow. and she, I was like, How do you even know that this book? <laughs> it's been oh in a God. drawer for six years. Yeah. Um, and she said, Well, after i had so when my first agent quit the business i had gone out and tried to find another agent and didn't get didn't get anywhere with it and at the time susan was an assistant for another for one of those agents that i had oh, sent wow. it to and she read it and she recommended they take it on and what ended up happening was the person passed the the agent that was in charge at the time that she was an assist, assistant for passed and so susan kept my query letter with the idea that she would f- find me and oh um God. and find the book and and she did and uh, it's when she was you know ready to be an agent herself and so six years later she was and so she found me and um and she was like well, is this book still available i said yes and and so then she sent it out and it got published so that, oh that's oh crazy <laughs> that's a crazy story yeah so what happened? Know. What happened to the book that you, the second book? That one's that one's still sitting. You got to wait another six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah that one's another got six years. Another six years. Someone will come to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, she's I, sending. She's sending it out. Who know? Who knows? But
3: knock wood. I'm gonna knock yeah. on my yep. fake wood yeah. desk here. Sorry, um, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I um, absolutely. So I, I have this policy when I go into reading books is I, I don't read the jacket copy. I don't read the back. I don't read the, I don't read anything. Cause mm-hmm. I, I want to go in blind. Um, Cause I feel like sometimes the jacket copy emphasizes something that happens like in the first 20 pages. And, and when the rest of the book is like about, I don't know, I, I feel like I don't want to be manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't read, I didn't read what it was about. Um, or anything like that. And I just went in blind and I was so utterly delighted by like these women who in some cases they, they, they almost come off as like deranged, like sociopathic, but also blindly ambitious and hopeful. Like this, there's this pure hope that goes throughout all of it. And I I was so impressed because it's, you know, the reaction that, that those editors had before the tragedies happened, um you know, that these were, Unlikable or or kind of you know confusing in a way because they're not you know we're we we're not necessarily going like yeah go Sandra go ruin that guy's life yeah (laughs) you know but it's so freaking fun to read and there are these um these wonderful human moments you know where um they are honest with themselves even if later on they choose to you know ignore Ignore that yeah (laughs) um yeah and so I just want to know like how. How did that come to you? How did you um, decide on these characters and 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 give yourself permission to to let them be unlikable in in certain cases?
1: Well, in terms of ambition, I I, I really wanted to examine what ambition looks like when you are in this place of. I'm going to go to the gold rush and make a million dollars, or I'm going to say, as I was doing at the time, write a novel and, and you know, it'll be a, a bestseller. Like I, I, there is, and also at the time, there was a lot of like, uh, what was it? The secret was happening mm. and vision boards and all these things which haven't gone away and actually have just morphed into new things. So I, I find that really fascinating how we have this culture of, uh ambition where you're almost lying to yourself where you're where it's like everybody's going to make it everybody's gonna somehow be a rock star in some capacity like president or a billionaire like Mark Zuckerberg pick your fantasy you know and I, I think that comes from the gold rush. I, re- I really do. It's wow. um, that's this point in our history where we really took manifest destiny, which existed in a, in a form before that. And we, we applied it in this new way. So before that, people would come to this country and they would slowly over generations accrue wealth. That was the idea. And when the Gold Rush happened, it became within your lifetime, or maybe even a few months of hard hard, solid work, you would go and become fabulous, fabulously wealthy. And so I, I think that's really an interesting thing that we really do believe in still, even though most of us, if you said, if you asked them, I think a lot of people don't believe in that, but it's part of the American, myth and it's something that we still repeat. And so I, I think that one thing that's interesting is you don't think about women being that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's like when women act that way, it's immediately unlikable and it's immediately deranged, but, but when men do it, it's, it's, it's like going, he's a go-getter. So, so I was interested in that, but also, you know, with the whole thing about, people being unlikable and so forth i've been thinking about that a lot because i never really thought of it that way when i was writing these characters because i I guess i just don't care that much (laughs) and um and then i I was like why because that has been the the criticism is that these characters are you know kind of hard to like sometimes sandra is very selfish and she's liar and she's a manipulator and and um and I was like, well, because I think it's because when I was a kid, I, I kind of related to the unlikable female characters. Like I was like, mm. those are the ones that are interesting. So I, I think it's never been important to me. Um, so who, who
3: were those, who were those characters for you when you were a kid?
1: Oh gosh. Um, well, there weren't a lot, um, mm. you know, Period what was that Harriet said,
3: Harriet yeah
1: yeah Harriet this Sp- yeah things like that where it's just um you know or like Ramona like that mm-hmm. that was a character mm-hmm. who was um you know often uh just like making a huge mess and s- squirting uh t- toilet and no, not toothpaste into a-, a sink and you know I mean it was just like these were the interesting characters it was never the pretty princess a punky Brewster I don't know <laughs> like yeah you know like that kind of thing and so I just never, li- and I also watched a lot of old movies and I liked the the more sassy characters. So, um, you know, I was always like, when I watched cartoons like Tom and Jerry, I always rooted for Tom. Like I
0: just,
1: <laughs> yeah. So I just think it, it's never been important to me that characters be likable. I, I don't- Me
3: neither. And, and it, it doesn't, it- <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I hate that argument myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate the the notion that you, you know, there has to be a pure heroine or hero in every book and that, you know, they have to be uncomplicatedly good in order for you to root for them.
1: It's still so important that women be likable. And yeah. I was a little naive about that when I was writing this book about.
3: Oh Alex. no. I, the, I, I kept texting Alex, like, like, holy shit, this book is so badass. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah. Like, oh my God. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so like yeah just wild and like like I said so much fun to read and and so chock full of history um and and that that brings me to another question I had for you what came first for you like the the history did you know going in that you wanted to talk about this period in history or did the characters come to you
1: well um I think it was sort of it was a long time ago you know so it's hard to remember, but. There is an element of this that sort of relies on my family history.
3: Mm, Yeah, Um, you mentioned that in your acknowledgments. I I was wondering about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I think you know, it's important to say that this is fiction and, and you know, all that. This is not, a, by any means, an autobiographical novel.
3: So but, you're Sandra.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's is Frederick okay? Why. Can you
3: tell me who Frederick is and if he needs help?
1: Just blink. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but, you know, here I, I sort of had this idea of, you know, like applying sort of my family myths, which I'll get, I'll explain to you, to sort of the California myth. So I kind of wanted to marry that with American myths. Like I was just playing with myths kind of. Mm -hmm. And so with family myths, it it comes from, um, my grandfather came over here from Germany and my dad grew up hearing, I never met my grandfather. He died when I was two. Um, But my, my dad grew up hearing all these stories he told about our family and just like, you know, things like he, some of them are in the book, like, um, you know, gold mines in German mountains and going to Hollywood and drawing Mickey Mouses for Disney and just all of these very dramatic family stories about who he was and who we were. And when my dad, and my dad believed it because it was his dad, you know, telling him these stories. And, you know, they were very, they were very dramatic. Like they were always like, like thwarted love you know like a a romani woman who fell in love with this german man and then they were they were pushed aside by their family like this very dramatic high scale interesting stories and anyway what happened was uh my dad discovered they were all just some of them we we don't know which ones were lies like he just was a storyteller um and the weird thing about that is it created this sense of confusion about who we are like we don't know whether we're German or Austrian we don't know where we don't know about that part of the family because there's just all these weird stories and so that and so it it was like my grandfather as an immigrant coming over here sort of made his own myths and made up family stories that were not true and so that was sort of my ideas like I, I and my grandmother and they had a very my grandmother and my grandfather Sandy Sandra and Frederick are are roughly based on the on aspects of their marriage and mm. so um so I I wanted to really dive into that and just sort of apply it to the broader idea of of myths and just sort of what does that mean when you don't really when when the stories you've been told about yourself whether you're an American or a Californian, or me, um, or my dad, you know, aren't really true. And what does that say about who you are and how do you find a, an, an identity? And uh, especially when you couple that with something like failure, where you're faced, where you're forced to face what you are not, you know, what you cannot do. So that's kind of the, the ideas of the book.
3: I really want to talk about the ending. Mm-hmm. it's a spoiler Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) yeah
3: um maybe I'll just broadly ask you
1: um
3: because I when I and I'm talking specifically about the the ending to Sandra's storyline um because the the title of the book is so clever because it ends right back where we started from (laughs) which I like only realized a day after I read it I was like oh duh this is how I am though this is how I am I am thick but the I will say that I gasped when, um, Frederick drives up and and when Frederick drives up at Mm -hmm. the end of Sandra's story without giving too much away. Mm -hmm. Did that come to you naturally? Did you fight with how to end Sandra's storyline?
1: Yeah. I, I always knew how it would end and and, um,
3: yeah.
1: And I, it's because, um, Gosh, this is so hard to talk about because I don't want to spoil it, but it is part of that. Like I told you Okay, Mike- listen,
3: listen. Anyone who doesn't want this to be spoiled. And and, you know, honestly, if you haven't read this book yet, do yourself a favor. It is so much fun. Skip ahead. Okay. <laughs> and come back to this when you're done reading. Okay. Go ahead, Joy. Okay.
1: All right. <laughs> you know, personally, I never mind spoilers. I know some people hate them. Um, but I always like to know. But anyway. That's um, how my yeah. husband is too. Sure, let's spoil it. Sure. Um, so at the end of the book, Sandra burns down this house that um, Frederick has built, and it's very fraught. And <laughs> she she burns it down, but uh, it's set up in such a way that you can't. She she seems like it's she makes it look like it was an accident.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, yeah, that was uh, that was. In, <laughs> I don't know. Should I tell the? I guess I'll tell you. I've already gotten this far into it, but yeah. <laughs> Um, When my dad was young, um, he says the worst day of his life. My dad's like 83, Mm. um, turning 83. Um, He was 10 and he was in school. And one day he, um, he, he was on the schoolyard. He was in the school, like out in the playground at school. And somebody said, your house burned down. And he was like, (gasps) no, no, it didn't. And yeah. And his, his parents had had a really bad marriage. Now I don't know the facts I don't know the story but um it it turned out it was true she she, like the same day that my grandmother filed for divorce she the house I I don't know that she burned down the house Uh, the house burned down and so, and it was very, it was very suspicious. So I, it's always been a question of whether she lit the house on fire or not. And oh, so, um, yeah, so I was just like, I wanna get to that in this story. So that was always the ending is is like how, you know and it, again, this isn't, these are not my grandparents.
3: No, 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 but, no. But you know,
1: yeah, but, um, but there was this like family story and I always, Found it really interesting. And of course, my grandmother said she didn't do it. And she probably didn't, but um, but it's more interesting if the character does. So, you know, so there you go.
3: It's so wonderful because it's the story that Frederick tells himself is that I'm gonna be this American cowboy. He's you know, he's from Germany, he tells everyone he's from Austria, Mm -hmm. and but he has this this vision of being an American cowboy and making it on a ranch, and he's you know, really trying hard to work toward that
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and then and then it burns down. Um, (laughs) and Sandra sort of goes off and says, I'm going to start over. I, this is what I always do. And I'm going to be fine. And you know, wash that man right out of my hair. And it is so, (laughs) it is just, I could not believe it, even though I, I knew, I knew it wasn't going to end great, but I just, I still held out hope that she, she would think to herself, you know, I'm, I'm not, I know how my mom got in her own way and I'm not going to get in my own way you know? Yeah. um, Yeah. God, it's so good.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a lot of people have been like, what does she do next? What does she do next? And, you know, I mean, maybe she will eventually learn. I don't know. Does that seem likely? It doesn't seem likely to me but it would be nice. It'd be nice.
3: I mean, she learned from her mother, you know, she, she learned from her mother how to keep going. And, and by telling yourself, like in my life, I call that big talk. And it's, it's, you know, sort of like, if I say it, or if I think it, then that's enough to make it real. You know, yeah. it's, it's the big talk that can really get you <laughs> to the next station in life.
1: It's so interesting. It's, it's sort of that idea of ambition. It's, it's like, Ambition is important and useful and it gets you where you want to go, but at some point you can be lying to yourself. And Mm -hmm. it's just really hard to tell where that line is because you need to sort of pep talk yourself through life. (laughs) You know, it's, it's it's how you get to what you need to do But at the same time, I'm sure you've met people that, you know, are just telling themselves a, a bunch of stories and it's just it's a complicated thing it's like where does it end where does it where is it healthy and where is it not healthy and I feel Mm -hmm. like as Americans we're really encouraged to go to this unhealthy place with it and I don't know I I think like that's why so many of us are full of discontents and we're just like feel like our lives aren't good enough you know Mm -hmm so uh so that's sort of sandra's problem throughout the novel is she's just never satisfied she never it's not enough for her to have a happy marriage or a family that's not she's never going to be happy with that because she's been conditioned so much that she's better than that that there's more to her than that
3: man what if sandra had instagram good god (laughs) (laughs) what
1: yeah she would totally be one of those people yes influencer absolutely or some kind of marketing person.
3: <laughs> she would, she totally would. And it would just, and then you'd like, her pictures would be flawless. And if you happened to pass by as she was taking one, like there'd be small flames around her and like a huge <laughs> mess, <laughs> just like, but only like shoulders up would be perfect.
1: <laughs> to be fair to her, there would be a lot more options for her. I mean, part of the problem true. Is, that she has is like, in those days there was just like three or four things a woman could do and i do think she would fare better today i mean she would definitely be on instagram <laughs> but i mean you know there's there's not that many ways in the past that women could rise up and that was her that's a lot of her problem is that she wants to be successful but but everything's shut to her because she's a woman you know she that's can't so go be a, she can't be a politician or a marketing person or anything. She she has to marry or you know work some dumb job like a secretary job. Not that not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but in terms of like being very wealthy and and important, that's not going to get you anywhere.
3: Yeah, and it was so um, like one of the most like uh, heartbreaking things about the novel was the fact that she always promised herself she'd never go back to the fields, you know, she would, or, you know, the orchard, she would never go back to that kind of life. And that was something that Frederick didn't understand about her, um, probably because she didn't talk to him about it in that way. But, um, you know, it was his dream to live that life. And it was her dream to get as far away from that life as possible. And we only get like a little glimpse of what her childhood was like, um, you know, with with Mabel and Daddy Jones and all that, but you know, just by how adamant she is, that it was really hard and and you know hard, hard scrabble and and hungry and um, so you know, it really grounds her as a as a character. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I I think <clears throat> you know Frederick with his cowboy stuff. Even though he's had a hard childhood as well, mm-hmm. he hasn't really experienced, you know, what it really is to be poor in, in a, in a rural situation like she has. And also mm-hmm. she's had a really rough child. There's a lot about her that she's not saying about her childhood. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can tell. Yeah. 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 So that's definitely there. And that's what she's running from, you know, and I think I think it is important that, that that's there because th- you know, there's something she's very afraid of going, she's very afraid of going back to that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's it's like her worst fear. And she will do anything to keep from doing from going back there.
3: Yeah, all she has to do is look at her mother, right?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think
3: I don't want to be that.
1: Yeah,
2: it's (laughs) so interesting to think about the kind of line between maybe healthier, productive delusion, and ambition, in terms of writing, and even in terms of, the way this novel came to publication joy because i mean if you think about <laughs> that that gap that six year gap i mean i don't know what your feelings were during the time about you know the state of the book if you thought maybe it's just going to be in a drawer for a while but if you had said you know to your partner to a buddy at that time you know i no i'm still positive this is going to come out you would have sounded nuts mm-hmm. B- but at the same time look where we are now we're here talking about this great book and so it's so it's so bizarre to me i think related to writing how ambition and delusion can play because i mean this is something Lindsay and i talk a lot about but you really do have to delude yourself and just <laughs> getting into the <laughs> computer to keep going like someone will be reading this one day someone will be reading this one day and i think whether or not that ambition is healthy is can sometimes be a day-to-day thing <laughs>
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's what I was working out personally while I was writing this. I really think a lot of the book, looking back, was just like, you know, when you look at the odds of getting a book published, realistically, it's so hard. It's so there's it's so small. There's so many hurdles to jump, and I'm not trying to discourage anybody who's listening, but I, but it is. It's it's a tough thing, and so it's yeah, it's hard to balance um, the realistic cold eye look with that with still trying anyway and I think that that was part of what I was working out with this book it's like you know at what point is this delusionary delusion and what point is it like go try for your dreams you know be be. so I yeah it's it was uh it was stressful um the whole time like I think maybe all writers deal with this where you're just like I don't know if this is ever I'm putting all this work into this I'm really trying here and it, it may never do anything, and I think that that is essentially the the conflict. At least it is for me. And so, yeah, that was a that was a big thing. And as you say, like I, d- you know, I did give up on it. I was like, because I'm kind of a pessimist. I was just like, it's in a drawer. I, you know, first novels fail. Mine did, and then here, it ca- and then it came out. And so you never know what's going to happen. I guess you can't plan for it. It's just crazy
2: random it is I mean the the idiosyncrasy (laughs) of the stories that we hear about first books coming out have just really been staggering over the past year or whatever that we have had this podcast because you know so often you hear like the cliche log line about like all right it only takes one person or you know everybody has their own own path to a book coming out but over and over again Lindsay and I hear fucking crazy stories (laughs) although you Yours might be at the top joy, to be honest. And, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, but I mean, it's just so true. Everybody has this torturous path that they have to go and it's certainly not similar to the person next to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
3: I saw, um, I think it was on Instagram. I saw like a Venn diagram at one point and on one side, was the ambition. And on the other side was narcissism. And in the middle was writing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a narcissist. And, um, and so like, I think that was part of my problem with this. It's just like, and not that I don't believe I should be a, a novelist or a writer, but also like, you know, what are, what are realistic expectations versus your, your dream? Like we can't, you know, I'm not going to be Shakespeare. My work is probably not going to live on after I die. Like, you never know. I mean, this book got published, maybe I'll write something that good, but you know, the, even that it's like, who cares? I'll be dead. You know? So there's just like mm-hmm. all this, like, how do you deal with all of these different messages of what being a writer is versus what I'm trying to do, which is, I want to tell stories, reach readers have you know a career in this where I could get to keep doing it and and my focus is has been like well the way you do that is you you try to get as good as you can because mm-hmm. I I do believe and I've said this in the past and I, it's a cliche but it, I think it's true in writing cream does rise to the top eventually like I think mm-hmm. if you write good work you're I mean it sounds it sounds simple but I do think you're, if you write good work, people will notice eventually. I mean, look, look at my book. Like, I think it was a good book and it just had bad timing. It wasn't the right time for it to come out. And then it took, you know, Susan remembering it for it to come out. So I just, you never know what's going to happen with this stuff. And all you can do as the writer is just do your best and keep like, don't get complacent and just keep trying really hard to get better and better at this. And it's exhausting.
3: (laughs) It is. is. And, but it's like, it's, you know, you did that because you put your first novel in a drawer and then you wrote another one, you know, Mm -hmm. and you just believed, you just thought, okay, I've, I've got to try another one now. Um, And I think, I think even I see, you know, people that I went to grad school with, they came out of grad school and they didn't write anymore, you know, and it's, it's, it really is about like staying and staying and staying, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Persistence. Uh, it's, just, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not. But, you know, I think also I have the the journalism side, which has helped a lot. It, it's helped and it's hindered because, uh, you know, I, I do get published regularly. I, I do get that feedback from readers. But then I, then, you know, when you're writing an article, you don't have time to work on a novel. And what I really do want to do in the long run is write novels. So it's you know, there's also the time management. I don't know. None of this is easy, I guess. <laughs> so. No, no,
3: it's not. It's it's all picking and choosing. Yeah. But do you think, Um, I do want to ask you about your nonfiction writing and your essays. Do you think, you know, you've you mentioned that getting that feedback helps, but do you feel like also dabbling in other forms helps keep you fresh when you're returning to your fiction? Or is it really just like, distraction
1: (laughs) well it's it's not a distraction it's more like i like both of them and i i can never decide what to spend my time on um Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i i think it's more like for me it's like the idea is first so something will attract my attention and i'll get excited and want to write about it and then it'll be obvious whether it should be fiction or non-fiction um or it's usually obvious so um so it's it's just like they're both kind of competing in my mind at all times because I could I can go either way um so yeah I think that um you know they do feed back and forth in each uh, to each other because one will inspire the other you know I'll be Mm -hmm. researching one thing and um something else will pop up and i'll be like that'll be a good that would be a good story or that would be a good short story or that would be oh that's a book idea you know and and so i'm always i always have this like feedback between the two so i'm never without ideas i have more ideas in my head that i could ever get out of my body until i die but um but it's just a matter of of how do i want to express them and where they should go like should they be in non-fiction should they be fiction so that can be, that's my, that's my creative struggle is I never know where to put my effort because I have limited time and li- limited energy and I can go either way with either thing and both have benefits, like both give me rewards in different ways, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so, but they, you know, they're both, they're both very creative and, and inspiring for me, but in different, different ways.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what the editing process was like for right back where we started from?
1: Sure. Was there anything that
3: like surprised you about it or is it pretty smooth?
1: Oh gosh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: so, uh, okay. Well, I, the way I generally write is the first draft is it just comes out in a big gloppy mess, but very <laughs> easily and fun. It's, that's the fun part for me. Um, and then uh it's it's sort of like it's just this big blanket that now needs to be cut apart and re-sewn 8,000 different times until it's it's a coherent it's like a, it's not even a blanket it's just like a big like mess of of fabric that i need to now form into a blanket and so um you know it's it's i remember specifically since i didn't know how to write because again this <clears throat> this book goes back and forth in time and is mm-hmm covering like a hundred years. So it was, it was quite a lot to get all this narrative down. So I believe what I did was I wrote it chronologically. So I, I wrote some Sandra, Sandy, she was named Sandy then, Sandra stories um, <clears throat> early on. And then I was just like, no, I need to just find out who Vera is, find out who Mabel is. So I think I wrote it pretty much chronologically. And then I, when I, when it came to editing it, I eventually got to the system where I wrote out all the scenes in little like shorthands, like lightning chapter. This Mm -hmm. is the one I just read you or, you know, there's a sign where there's a chapter where Sandra wears um, a sandwich board to get to to, uh, get discovered in Hollywood Mm -hmm. in 1930s Hollywood. So that's sandwich board. And so I just wrote out like shorthand. And then I printed all those out, and I cut them out, and then I basically made a storyboard where I, 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 you know, laid them out on my carpet on my in my office, and I arranged them in different orders, and I, I did, and then I would paste them to a board or tape them to a board, and I'd go through, and I would then edit the book according to this order, and I did this over and over and over again until I finally had an order that worked and that, told the story all the way through so it took a it took a long time
2: how how large were the structural changes you were making within that process were you making large large swaps of of things were you moving things around in a way that was forcing you to write new scenes I mean or was it more a little bit more granular than that fine-tuning
1: well I I would like to I would like to say before I answer that, that I am better at this now. Like, I wouldn't do this now, but there were huge misdirections. Like, there was a whole second section where Sandra goes into a cult. Like, there oh, was a wow. whole cult. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, give me that book, please. Yeah, Linda definitely <laughs> wants that book. You
2: have her email, right? She can, she'll
3: read it. Yeah. Uh, oh, man.
1: If the book ever takes off in that way, I'll, I'll do like a little novella where she goes to. Please. She did. She went to a cult. It was a 1930s cult called Zenith. And it had a, had a cult leader named Sorella. And yeah, it was a whole thing. And and I liked it, but it was, she was so passive in it. And I realized it was just a big, uh, it was like, you know, this little secret part of her past that you don't get to see in the existing book. But but yeah, so you know, that it, that's a good illustration where I just I just would go in these directions and I would follow them and then they didn't work after a while and I was I was just like I really like this cult. I've invested in it. It's got really interesting characters. There's these like weird like zo- not zombie, but these like um these people from who have been affected by the by the Great Depression come and they try to like glom onto the cult and like overrun the cult anyway yeah so it was it worked in the themes but it just didn't work for the character and so I had to I had to cut it and just completely rewrite the second section so it was things like that where it just took so long Mm -hmm. to to really just hone in on the story and not get distracted by you know, like I said, I always have a zillion ideas, like, cults are fun, it's exciting, but it really wasn't the story, and so I had to, I had to get rid of that, so there was a lot of stuff like that, where just, you know, trial and error, until it was, when it started to feel like, oh, I'm zooming in on what the actual story is, and not Mm. having cults,
3: (laughs) I nearly had my main character in my last novel veer off into a cult. <laughs> um, he's looking for his son, and he been, and he was he looks for his son with this cult, and then oh. I pulled oh, back. Oh, from- only when you're
2: hungry. You did, uh-huh. yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still, um, I still think about writing a sequel and and putting the son in a cult.
1: They're we'll see. endlessly they're endlessly fascinating. Who I wouldn't know.
3: love a cult novel? I love I them all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I, I I and and they're very popular now. Like maybe that would make my book more popular. I don't
3: know. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. what was it like editing with um with Blackstone?
1: Oh, they were great. Um, they've been great the whole time. Um, they they were very um, you know, it was a good balance of they gave me a a really good, um, editor. Her name was Holly Rubino. And, um, she was a great editor, uh, but not like rewrite the whole book situation. It was, it was more just line edits and, and, you know, going in, there were some, some minor things she wanted me to flesh out, like some stuff with Mabel. Uh, it, it went pretty smoothly and, um, she was great to work with. So that, that whole part of it was very smooth. Um, And so, but at that point, the book had almost been over edited. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, at that, there wasn't a lot for them to do because I, it, it, it was pretty tight at that point. But, um, but I do feel like the things she brought out really fleshed it out, especially with Mabel, who was the, the, um, who is Sandra's mother. She was the hardest character of the three. So there's Vera, Mabel and, and Sandra and Mabel is, you know, she's really complicated and, um, you know people think Sandra's unlikable like she's I mean she's she's quite a piece of work but there's this like very deep desperation mm-hmm. um inside of her and so getting that out and explaining that was um was hard and and so she helped me with that part of it a lot and I thought that that really helped the book a lot
3: yeah her her parts are probably the darkest yeah. um there's there's some there's you know <laughs> there's like a glossing over of the fact that she was probably a prostitute. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. for, for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it comes from, like you said, it comes from that deep desperation and, and, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to, to get back what she lost and
1: mm-hmm.
3: oh, I love this book. Um, <laughs> I'm
1: glad you liked it. That's so nice.
3: It's, it was, it was just so great. Um, I, I want to hear about this next thing you're working on. If you can tell us anything,
1: well, yeah. So I have two things. So one is um, I have an essay collection um, that my agent is shopping around. Um, it's about women um, women artists, uh, women writers, really. Um, I've written quite a few essays about just really interesting stories you don't hear about, about semi-famous writers, like, well, famous writers, like Anais Nin and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah. And then I have some... Um, some less some really weird stories about women writers so there was for example there was one about this woman named Pearl Curran who in the early 20th century um convinced the United States that a ghost was talking to her through a media Mm. board and she wrote she said the ghost was talk was dictating novels to her and so she wrote these novels out um and they were taken very seriously. Like the New York Times reviewed them. What? Reviewed oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was a crazy story. This woman really got away with this for a while, and then and then um, her partner, who was also on the Ouija board, really kind of spoiled it because she said Mark Twain was contacting her and telling oh. her to write. So then everyone was like, "Wait a minute! Mark Twain's not a good Mark Twain's ghost <laughs> is telling you to write this book." And she did. She wrote. She wrote. I have it. It's called Jap Heron. Anyway, so um, so it's like a book of weird stories like that about women writers, and and you know, with the thing with Pearl Curran is she just really was a, this, this woman who just had no purpose in her life and this gave her purpose and so it was it, it was really kind of sad in a way like she had to she had to make up a ghost in order to write a book and, and get attention anyway so that's
3: I had to, I had to make up all kinds of characters to write a book so
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean you can kind of relate to to Pearl in a, in a way anyway so yeah the book is a, is about just a bunch of different stories like you know like Anais Nin was a bigamist for 10 years and and go
3: Anais Nin
1: yeah and she didn't neither man knew about the other so she would go she lived in New York and she had this like rich sophisticated husband and she would go to him and like live in her New York world and then she would come out here to California and live in the mountains with this like ranger guy and like have this hot like romantic idyllic life and she would fly back and forth between the two so Anyway, weird, weird stories like that. So that's, um, that's what my agent is shopping around. And then I am writing a new novel. Um, and I don't want to say too much about it, but it is about a school bombing. So <gasps> it's, it's very dark, uh, but oh my it's, gosh. yeah, it's set in the 1920s. So,
3: wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, sign me up for all of it. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> I cannot wait. And um, so glad that you came on with us and so excited for any of our listeners who haven't read Right back where we started from by Joy Lanzendorfer. Um, please go read it and then let's all get together and talk about it because it is so, so good and so fun. And uh I loved it and, and I love this talk and thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you thank for having you, Joy. me. Yeah, this was great. I'm so glad you you invited me on and and thank you.
3: Oh, please. Yeah, Our pleasure. Come back coming. on when those books come out. Okay. So I can freak okay. out again. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah yeah yeah. that was good that was a good great story about the uh about her novel getting published that's I know. you know what that is a i love that that assistant at the time and now her agent was just like i know this is good if i ever have a chance i'm gonna reach out that is so heartening and just it's really beautiful. Beautiful is the right word.
3: It is so beautiful. And you know that that's out there because you've read manuscripts that you love and that, you know, are yes. good. And that if you had the 100%, chance, right.
2: Oh my God. I mean, you too, you know,
3: yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So Susan Velasquez, I think she said her name was what a, I think that, yeah, I think, treasure.
2: what a fucking legend.
3: Thank you. That's better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she can also be a treasure, not mutually yeah. exclusive.
3: Yeah. There you go. She's both. Yep. Uh, what do you got going on?
2: What do I have going on? I am back at work after my several days off. It's fine to be back. No big deal. I had so I had nine days off. And Lindsay, I'm telling you, it felt like. Two days.
3: Ugh, I know, I know that feeling. Which
2: was fine. I mean, you know, whatever. Like, we got a lot done. It was, it was great. Got to run around with the girls. But like, it's so, it's wild. Like, I was trying to think, like, what the chunk of time would have to be for it to be like, holy fuck, I've been off for a long time. And I think the answer is, there's, it, it, I just, I would need to like just retire because it just <laughs> seems like. I don't yeah. know. Yes. I don't know. I hear Cause that. I'm weak because I'm weak. Um, <laughs> let's see what else is going on. It's, I, just, uh, it's
3: amazing how great life is when you have the time to oh, Jesus. be present for the, the people and the things in your life, right?
2: Yes. And two parents parenting at the same time. Wow. The best. <laughs> so much easier. Yeah. it's kind of amazing. I mean, what a luxury, obviously. I mean, I don't really know anybody who has that all the time, obviously, but I mean, it just is like, wow, this is really pretty easy. Like one of us can do, get house stuff done. And one of us can play with the girls and then we can switch and we can both make dinner and like, holy fuck, like what is better than this?
3: Harmonious.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. And even when things go wrong, you have your you know your your partner there to help you it's pretty pretty fucking staggering yeah Um, i still
3: i still count the minutes till bound till bound till ben walks through the door every every i mean he he gets to work from home um two days a week so that's been awesome okay yeah um but yeah i still am like because it just is it's like okay Mm
2: -hmm.
3: i've got a little help now you know
2: definitely yeah i don't know I don't know what else is going on. I'm reading, I'm reading way too many things at once. And uh, uh, I don't know, drinking beer, watching hockey, not sleeping, same stuff as it's been for the past year, whatever.
3: This whole podcast. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. What about you're you? Vibing and thriving as they say.
2: Vibing and thriving. Yep.
3: <laughs> um, same. I mean, except for the beer and the hockey. Um, hmm. We had my son's sixth birthday party today at like a trampoline place. And we hadn't been to that place since before the pandemic. And it was so great to, to just have like a normal birthday party where the kids could run around and, you know, like eat pizza and cupcakes and just like get sweaty and, you know, so totally that was really lovely. Um, and yeah, I loved Joy's book. I finished that a couple of days ago and I started Mike McGinnis's new book.
2: Hell yeah, Drowning Practice. Shout out, Mike.
3: What up, Mike? He's coming on next week. Um, and his book is wild. And I'm excited to talk to him about it. It is yeah, dystopian and funny and really sad. Trick. Yeah, I loved his first book.
2: Yes, um, Fat Man and Little Boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So yep, and that I don't I think that comes out in, in the summer. Drowning practice comes out in the summer.
2: I actually I think it's uh I don't know. I think it's actually sooner than that, to be honest.
3: Oh my bad. Well, everyone better jump on that. Um yeah, so I'm I'm really enjoying that, even as it's hard to read because it's dystopian and
2: mm-hmm. um it comes out. March 15th. So basically the summer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I
3: think
2: that's pretty squarely in spring.
3: It's not even spring. That's, is it not? That's, yeah, it's still winter.
2: Jesus. Until like Christ. March. 20th. Yeah. Is that real? Is that true? Yeah. Holy shit.
3: Yeah, man. I don't
2: um, know the, I don't know months or anything like that. So I just trust you. <laughs> yeah I was so stubborn as a little kid like I like didn't learn how to read a clock until I was probably like I don't know let's just say 27 (laughs) and months of the year probably similar just like I couldn't I'm like you really want me to memorize this like who cares (laughs) it does like it's the same thing as algebra it just doesn't you don't you don't it doesn't matter you don't need it
3: you're you've always been the same person
2: I have been it's true just so stupid and stubborn oh my god
3: I love it Uh, but yeah that's it
2: that's it cool well I'm excited to talk to Mike Mike get ready we're coming with a lot of great questions and enthusiasm and aggression to be honest
3: (laughs) yep that's right okay I'm gonna I'm showing up to that pissed
2: on that note I am pissed already Mike I'm so mad right now
3: (laughs) I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah.